Welcome to Behold and Become, a podcast about faith with me, Robert Black. Welcome to episode 45 of Behold and Become. We're continuing the series on different ways of understanding the atonement brought to us by the cross of Christ. And today we're going to be considering either the most obvious or the most controversial model of atonement, depending on where you're coming from, penal substitution. Now, in our culture, especially in the American South, if you were to ask someone what the cross means, they would likely say something like this. We were guilty of sin, but Jesus took our punishment for us on the cross so that we would be forgiven. Now, the penal part of this word points to the punishment aspect and substitution means that Jesus is the one taking that punishment instead of us. So that's why we call it penal substitution. But remember the analogy of the puzzle. Every piece is needed, and no single piece is the entire picture. For a lot of Christians, though, this is the only way to understand the cross, and that is a deficient understanding of the cross. To see salvation only in terms of punishment and exchange is to miss out on the fullness and grandeur of salvation. But to ignore this motif is also problematic because if we ignore this, we have to ignore a lot of scripture and tradition as we do so. So what we end up having is that for some people it seems like this is the only way to understand the cross and the others are creating ways around it. And anytime we try to go around something in our theology instead of wrestling with it, we don't often end up with a fruitful result. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that before he became a Christian, he thought that to be a Christian was to believe one particular thing about this one particular death, namely that God needed to punish humanity, but Christ volunteered to be punished and said, so God let us off. And this is where C.S. Lewis found himself when he was in the process of becoming a Christian. In his classic work, Mere Christianity, he writes, Now before I became a Christian, I was under the impression that the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what the point of his dying was, end quote. But then he goes on to write that he came to realize that theories about Christ's death are not Christianity. They are explanations about how it works, end quote. This is a reminder to us about that the fact that the cross saves is more important than us knowing how exactly it does that. And Lewis goes on to write, We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by his dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed, end quote. Lewis says that we have to not think so much in terms of punishment, though, but debt. He, he notes that if God was willing to just forgive, then why didn't God just forgive without the cross? This is a good question. As Lewis understands it, the substitution is more about the one who pays the debt than it is the debt itself and what we owe because of our sin. As he goes on to write, only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent perfectly. And so in becoming man, Jesus does for humanity what humanity could not do for itself, truly and fully repent. In his Dogmatics in Outline, Karl Barth puts it succinctly, God is the one 
who becomes guilty here and reconciles. And so when it comes to the idea of an exchange, you'll notice that there is a little bit of overlap here with the recapitulation theory, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Because remember, these pieces interlock with one another, so this is to be expected. Now, another way of describing this theory is by calling it the satisfaction theory. A little bit different, but generally the same idea. And this is traced to Saint, An An Saint Anselm, who was a Benedictine monk from Italy, who would go on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1093. Now, for Anselm, the idea of God owing something to Satan was just problematic. He didn't want to go down that road. So he sought to tweak the ransom or Christus Victor model. And instead of a debt being owed to Satan, the debt for Anselm was actually due to God. We owe God honor and obedience, but because of our sin, we became incapable of offering such a gift of honor and praise to God. And this created an imbalance, and God just can't ignore this imbalance. To simply forgive without any satisfaction for what has gone wrong would to be denying the wrongness of the wrong. It would be as if to say that sin doesn't matter. So, to satisfy or appease God, Jesus offers himself, making the sacrifice of obedience in himself that we ourselves could not make. Now, it was John Calvin who would go on later to really advance this theory being described in terms of punishment and wrath instead of honor, debt, or penance as Anselm envisioned it. One of the things that led to this atonement theory being misunderstood and rejected, though, is when people read it as God the Father making Jesus suffer on behalf of someone else. You know, if a child at my daughter's school got into trouble, but they decided to suspend my daughter instead of the guilty child, well, understandably, I'm going to be a little upset about that. And this is where Karl Barth's words are so important to keep in mind. But what first gives its significance to the humiliation and abandonment of this man is the fact that this man is God's son. It is none other than God himself who humbles and surrenders himself in him. End quote. Now we can quickly work ourselves into a logic trap when we try to understand the inner workings of the Holy Trinity. But the point is that God died on the cross. And Jesus is God. Only when we forget that Jesus is God do we start to talk about divine child abuse, which often people say is a detriment to this theory. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is God, and it is God on the cross. God chose this. It is in this way of understanding salvation that the idea of justification is often talked about. Now, the idea is that by the death of Jesus, a status is bestowed upon us that we previously did not have, and that status is being justified, something analogous to going to court and being found not guilty. Now, when you go to court, whether or not you commit the crime is irrelevant. Once the verdict is not guilty, you're free. Now, I'm just scratching the surface here because entire graduate seminars and dissertations could be written about the meaning of justification. But in short, it is something given to us by the cross as this theory understands it, something that we did not have and that Christ receives and gives to all of humanity. Now, one of the strengths of this theory is that it takes seriously the harm that's done by sin. Sin and evil need to be judged. Now, sometimes this rubs us the wrong way. As Fleming Rutledge puts it, 
we seem to have lost the ability to understand judgment as having any positive connotation. Some people reject this atonement theory because they don't like the idea of a judging God, because they falsely think that judgment and love are at odds with one another. But as we all know, closure is important. And in the cross, we get closure, both on the judgment against evil, as it stands in opposition to the will of God, and we get closure in the forgiveness of our sins, knowing that we have truly and fully been forgiven. So, Rutledge goes on to write, The importance of justification by grace, to be received through faith, as of the whole juridical set of ideas applied to the atonement, lies in the finality of the verdict of acquittal. Something is finished, However much we want to continue struggling with sin, perplexities, and ambiguities, we know that in our dealings with God, our Redeemer, revenge, resentment, and slavishness obligations are not just around the corner. Thank God, in Christ, there is a new creation. End quote. And this model of atonement effectively explicates and emphasizes Jesus' dying words and saint. John's telling of the gospel. It is finished. That is really one of the greatest strengths of this atonement theory, that it makes it clear that it is finished and we are forgiven. Now, the effect of the cross can be understood, therefore, as rectification. Things are rectified. They are set right. Now, whether we want to understand this in a legal way, a punitive way, or an economic way, the point is that the relationship has been made right, and so we are now righteous. And that's what's at the core of this theory. Any exploration of substitutionary atonement, though, would be incomplete if we didn't consider the fact that, perhaps more than any other motif, this one comes with some baggage. The atonement theory certainly has a few issues. Certainly, these are not fatal flaws, but they do need to be considered and contextualized. Now, one flaw is that it seems that God is owed something. Again, whether that's in terms of a punishment that needs to happen or a debt that needs to be paid. And anytime we talk about something being owed to God, it seems impossible, right? Because God is perfect and complete, never needing or lacking anything. And so we have to address that concern. And the second concern is that this motif really leans into the violence of the cross and can lead to the dangerous idea of redemptive suffering. When this atonement theory is misunderstood, we think that the suffering is what saves us, but that is not the case. And that logic of suffering leading to salvation has been imposed on marginalized groups in very unhealthy and unchristlike ways, especially towards women and minorities, as a way of telling them to just accept their suffering without complaint. You know, that phrase from Jesus, take up your cross and follow me, certainly that's a good phrase, and, and we should have that as a part of our faith, but that phrase can also be misused to put suffering on other people and tell them just to deal with it. This idea must be clearly and fully rejected. And many feminist and womenist theologians have done a good job at addressing this concern. Now, when it comes to a critique or a reimagination of what it means to say that Jesus died for us, Catherine Tanner, a modern-day Episcopal theologian at Yale, offers some helpful reflections in a book called Christ the Key. One of the issues of this model, she notes, is that we don't live in the same sort of culture as the Bible. So the themes that are at play there are unintelligible to us. 
And even if we can intellectually understand these ideas, we don't swim in these waters. Now, one of these themes is the idea of an honor code that governs all of culture, something like a caste system, but not exactly the same. And, and yes, we do have classism in our society, but this is completely different than an honor-shame culture. And without that idea of honor running through our daily experiences, we're going to have trouble understanding it. And in the same way, St. Anselm, when he's writing about the idea of debt and satisfaction, is in a feudal system. Well, we don't live in a feudal system anymore, so it's sometimes things get lost in translation in the same way that when we try to understand the sacrificial system of ancient Israel, it just doesn't translate in the same way. Now, another concern, particularly for this atonement model, is that it focuses almost exclusively on the cross. You could know nothing about Jesus' life and ministry and still understand this model. And this is okay if we keep that mosaic approach to atonement, because the mosaic approach includes much more. But for the Christian who only understands the cross through this model, it's deeply problematic because it means that the entire story of Jesus gets reduced to the cross. Now, to be clear, I think we can absolutely say that all of Jesus' ministry can be summed up in the cross, but it cannot be reduced to it. We still need the rest of the Gospels. Now, I hope I'm being clear about the nuance there, but we want to avoid understanding Jesus as someone who only came to die. He did so much more than that. For Tanner, the incarnation is where salvation is rooted, and an exclusive focus on the cross as a transaction that brings us salvation ignores the incarnate reality of God's love for us in Jesus. Tanner does not deny that Jesus died for us, but what she's seeking to do is to deepen what that for us is all about. It's more than a vicarious relationship where Jesus pays a debt for us. She writes, But in Jesus the Word makes our cause its own and does for us what we cannot do in virtue of the kinship established between the Word and humanity via the Incarnation, because of the bond of the Word with humanity that the Incarnation brings about. This is the incarnational identification of the Word with humanity, rather than Jesus' simple standing in our place before the law that makes Jesus our substitute in the prosecution of our case, end quote. So the for us is about solidarity with humanity. It is the at-oneing, the atoning of God to humanity. And only the incarnate God can do this. Furthermore, she notes that in the sacrificial system, we're never told how exactly the sacrifice atones, Rather, we're only assured that it does. Speaking of sacrifice, she writes, The right is not propitiatory. The point is not to change God's wrath to mercy, but to wipe away fault or impurity in ways that a God already desirous of communion with us institutes. End quote. So when we're talking about sacraments, you know, we often describe this as an, as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Well, God is the one who makes the sacrament the sacrament. It's not magic words spoken by the clergy that do the work. And the way that I'm reading this is that the cross is given to us as a sign of God's love and mercy. Now, that sign could be nothing less than what it is to make the point fully. But it's not that Jesus died on the cross and then God said, Oh, good, now I can forgive you. It's more, I forgive you, and I'm going to give you a sign to make that abundantly clear to you. 
As Tanner writes, Benefits do not come back to the offerer because the conditions of something like a contract have been fulfilled, but because the right trades on God's unbroken faithfulness to a decision to be engaged with those in temple service. God simply wants to reinstate God's people to full communion with God, and this is what God tells God's people to do in such cases. End quote. So what we see in the cross is doing this in a full way. Both the sacrificed and the sacrificer are God, and God does this to reconcile us. At the end of this section of her book, Tanner writes, Let me try to bring all this together in conclusion. Humans are not to offer sacrifices to God. God, to the contrary, makes gifts to us for use on our behalf, for which we are admittedly to be grateful in sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. The whole of Jesus' life, before as after his death, is such a life-giving sacrifice given by God for us to feed on for our nourishment. End quote. So, in a sense, Tanner is expanding the sacrifice of the cross to be not only about the death of Jesus, but the entire self-giving of God in the Incarnation, his birth, healing, teaching, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again— all of it is given for us. Now, to be honest, this atonement theory is one that I've struggled with the most. The idea of Jesus dying instead of me is one that's pervasive. You hear it everywhere out there in culture. Now, even for someone that grew up in the Episcopal Church, this is what I grew up thinking and hearing. Now, whether or not I heard that at school or at youth group or at church, I couldn't tell you. But that's what I grew up believing. And there is some truth to this, right? We cannot ignore the sacrificial understanding of Jesus' death. The problem is when we confuse one piece of the puzzle for the whole of it. And when I learned about other atonement theories as I was in seminary and in some other classes, you know, honestly, I pushed this one off to the side. I said it was too violent. We don't need to understand the cross in that way. And I've come to see that I was wrong in that thinking. We need this piece of the puzzle if the puzzle is going to be complete. There is nothing wrong with the idea of Jesus' death as being a sacrifice that was made for us. But for us to believe this, God does not have to be vindictive, bloodthirsty, or an insufficient deity in order to keep this part of the mosaic of atonement. There are ways with integrity to embrace the cross of Christ as a sacrifice made for the sin of the world. The Agnus Dei, O Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. That's a prayer that I cherish, and it takes seriously this idea. And I'm thankful for this atonement model, because it also reminds us of God's mercy, grace, and love. And I'm thankful for theologians who have pushed us to go deeper into the idea of sacrifice, so that in it we can find more than bloodshed, but we can find the amazing grace of God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we pray you to set your passion, cross, and death between your judgment and our souls, now and in the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the blessing of God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you 
and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.